Welcome to Three Women, Three Ways. We're a show that tackles difficult topics. I think the most difficult topics that we can possibly uh, tackle is when it involves children and families and that custody issue of children going to abusers, which we've seen study after study confirming that this does happen. It's such a huge issue. It's such an ongoing issue. I think most of us who are knowledgeable about it, and I add myself to that, even though there are plenty of people who are more knowledgeable, we think, why can't we just wave a magic wand and make these judges, make these court personnel knowledgeable and understand and equitable and care more about the kids? But we don't have any magic wands. But what we do have is Danielle Pollack and Marcy Hamilton. Welcome to the show, Danielle and Marcy. Thank you. Thank you. I'm sorry to compare you to magic wands, but um, you guys are actually (laughs) trying to do something about these court custody issues. Danielle is an ambassador for Child USA, and she's all about family court reform. Same with Marcy Hamilton, who is a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, and she is the CEO of Child USA. Welcome to the show, and thank you for joining us so that we can talk about family court reform. We pretty much know some of the horror stories of what goes on with child custody and family courts. I've had experts and attorneys and psychologists on the show, all of whom admit that there is a terrible problem with family court, especially having to do with child custody. I assume that you agree with that, Danielle. We certainly do, and we've known this for a long time, and now we know it empirically thanks to Joan Meyer's study that came out in 2019 um, showing across the nation how this is happening, um, that courts are disbelieving or minimizing um, protective mom's claims of abuse. And when there's a counterclaim of alienation, they're believing it even less in fairly dramatic fashion. On average, they believe protective uh, mom's claims of abuse about 43% of the time. And then when there's a cross claim of alienation from the person who's accused of abusing, um, that's cut in half. They believe the women uh, about half the time. So what, what we're trying to, one of the things we're trying to address in our custody reform effort is to get courts to, to look at uh, abuse alone without looking at the other factors and look at abuse claims as the sort of primary factor to be addressed first. And then if there's a finding of abuse to go from there, and if there's not a finding of abuse, then go into the other factors and look at the other uh, parts of how to assess custody. Okay. So that makes sense to the average person. Okay. If somebody's claiming abuse, set aside the issue of divorce and property settlement and child custody and first determine whether there is actual abuse going on. However, when you say that, it makes me nervous because I know how frequently courts and court personnel kind of turn a blind eye to abuse. Marcy, am am I just being um, overly sensitive about that or... What, no, what you found? not not at all. So we have a real problem in the family court system where we have not adequately educated our judges and our others that are in the system on the facts of child sex abuse and what you're looking for. Uh, you know, there's 
there are a lot of elements of child sex abuse that let it proliferate among institutions, including the family, uh, because the people's instincts often aren't correct. Um, the guy that's all buttoned up and looks like he's ready to go to work and he's totally trustworthy in front of the family court judge is going to often get more weight in the uh, custody determination than the woman who looks like she's about to fall apart. Well, she's falling apart because her children are being sexually assaulted by the guy. So this has really been, um, it's a challenge, but, uh, you know, we started Child USA for the purpose of helping to educate the public as well as the experts and the professionals. And we just really need to get a better handle on family court judges and get them to understand the dynamics of child sex abuse. And if, if we do that, then I, I do think that putting this issue first makes a lot of sense. Well, I, I appreciate and applaud what you're saying, but I have two questions. One is you mentioned specifically sexual abuse, which is, of course, a huge problem, but there's also other types of abuse. Are you guys focusing at Child USA only on sexual abuse of children? No, I was just using that as an example. Uh, and the the key issue with respect to child sex abuse is that it is frequently covered up and the child frequently doesn't understand it. Uh, with respect to other types of abuse, uh, the um, the child may not be so ready to cover, you know, to, to be part of the silence because they've got bruises. We We can see what happened to them. So all of these are tough issues. And in in many ways, we can see what happens to the uh, sexual abuse child, too, but uh, assigning blame. I I mean, I'm thinking of a particular case where the mom was um, told by the school counselor a child was acting out as if she had been sexually abused. Uh, Mom, horrified, takes the child to the doctor. Yes, there are evidences of uh, or there is evidence of, of um, sexual um, behavior going on. Mom takes the child to the psychiatrist or uh, the psychologist. Psychologist interviews the child, comes out and says, well, uh, she says, dad did it. Mom is horrified. Mom kicks dad out. Mom files for divorce. Mom continues to try and get treatment for the child. And when it comes to child custody, the judge said, well, you didn't talk about this supposed sexual abuse before you filed for divorce. And even if there is evidence of sexual abuse of this child, we have no evidence that it was dad who did it. Well, that is a highly unusual case in which there was actually physical evidence of the sex abuse. For the vast majority of sex abuse victims, we don't have that evidence. Uh, And so, uh, and, and we don't have, children who understand what's happened to them often by someone that they love and that they are dependent on so and who uh, who tells them that it's just fine that what's going on is just fine yeah right i I I would go ahead go ahead i was going to say the the problem across the society is that we assume that we know what's going on with a child even when they're being hurt and we don't. And so you've got to have a family court system that's savvy to the fact that domestic violence and abuse are issues that go on under the radar. And many times the child is required, threatened to keep silent. And 
So the judges believe what they see, but what they see is not necessarily what is true. Okay. The other question that I had for you after you um, uh, made your statement is you talk about the education of judges. We haven't educated judges. In my experience, you can only educate people who want to be educated. Are we sure that education is, is the key to changing this, or am I getting ahead of you? No, I think that the, um, with respect to lawyers and judges, they're already required to do continuing legal education. And if we can build this into their curriculum already, they will hear it. Now, not all of them will apprehend it or understand it, which is why we need really important structural change in the system. We need to change the, the weight of abuse. We need to change the order of the consideration. Uh, but the other part of this is that our culture is finally aware that sex abuse is common and finally paying attention to it. There's no judge that can be in this culture and not have heard about Epstein or the Catholic Church or the USA gymnastics victims. So if, if you look across the culture, we're at a good, this is a good time to start educating them. It would have been a lot harder 20 years ago. The the other question that I have is um, you talk about the difference between hearing the information, comprehending the information, and then accepting the information. And I think that's a really critical distinction or explanation of process of understanding. Are judges motivated? Um, we hear all the time about judges who, you know, are, are being um, making decisions that people are railing against, but they're kind of private. These, for the, except for the rare cases that it managed to get some publicity, uh, people, the general public, doesn't really know what's going on and what kinds of decisions are being made. Again, correct me if I'm wrong on that. No, it's true. And it's one of the reasons we've made this issue one of the leading issues that Child USA is focusing on. We need to educate the public. I mean, there are groups. Uh, across the country that are protective parent groups. They're often largely mothers who've been denied custody and their children are now with the abuser. But the the vast majority of the culture doesn't understand it. And as we just learned, uh, Danielle, and, and Danielle should tell you about this, she was just in Connecticut and got tremendous uh, press coverage and uh, sympathy because of telling the public, by the way, here is a child who was given to their abuser willingly. Um, so, Danielle, you should probably follow up on, you know, the amazing story from uh, Connecticut. Yes, last Friday we had uh, a great press conference to announce custody reform legislation in New Haven, Connecticut, together with um, Senator Alex Bergstein, who is the vice chair of the Senate Judiciary there. And we had great press coverage, so a lot of attention is coming to this issue. It happened to coincide with the Dulos arrest. I believe it's his second arrest. Um, and, of course, Jennifer Dulos has been missing since the spring, and she was involved in a uh, long, drawn-out custody battle with her, with her um, 
former partner. And so I think the press was certainly interested in this issue and is starting to listen to some of the concerns that parents have when they're in family court fighting for custody and fighting to protect their kids from someone who's potentially very dangerous. I Well, there's no question that the press becomes involved and, and interested when there's fatalities, usually. Um, I... I don't, I'm not particularly uh, familiar with that case, but unfortunately, it sounds like so many others that we hear about. Uh, contentious divorce, mom turns up missing. Um, and of course, that harkens back to, you know, the, the, the risk of lethality when women try to leave. Um, but as far as family court reform, do you think this publicity is really going to make a difference? I know, you know, there have been cases in Michigan, there have been a few, you know, every now and then there's a, a very um, well-reported case uh, of uh, family court gone wrong, and the media does follow it, and it seems to be, um, I don't know whether it's not necessarily famous people, but people who seem to be able to capture the media attention, and then the media is all over it. And then well, they forget it until the next meeting. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, like anything in our news cycle, it doesn't the attention doesn't always stay for too long. But the difference in this case is that um this tragedy has happened to coincide with something we've been working on um for a long time, which is an introduction of legislation to reform this system that traps uh victims uh into sort of cycles of abuse. And so we have sort of we're proposing a solution or one solution to part of this problem um, that's happening in family courts. Um, so it's not it's not solely a missing person um, who they you know they think the husband killed her. Um, there you know he was arrested and charged with that, and now he's out. He's been released on bail. And so our press release. He's been released on uh, bail. Do they yeah. do they do that offer often with suspected murderers? Uh, I I always thought I mean uh, I'm a layperson, but I always thought murderers they didn't really they weren't very generous with the bail. Am I naive? Um, in this case, the I think they initially had said that it was a six million bond. Obviously, this case is uh, you know deals with people who have of means. Um, and so he's been temporary. He was arrested on Wednesday and released on Thursday. And then we had our, you know, planned uh, press conference on Friday, which we had been planning for, for many weeks before we knew he was going to be arrested, of course. Um, and the senator, when she talked about the introduction of this legislation, she said, you know, this is to shine a light on many, many, many thousands of cases of people who are trapped in similar situations um, trying to protect their children and themselves after they've left in a, uh, an abusive situation. Um, and so it just, just sort of highlights it. Uh, so that's that's what happened in Connecticut. And we, we had coverage from CNN and the New York Times, the Washington Post, a lot of broadcast. And so we're hoping that people start paying attention to not only the fatalities and the danger, but also the potential um, ways to correct some of the harm that's being that's happening in the family courts. Yeah, I think that, you know, we talked uh, before about education of judges, but there also has to be education of the public. And the sad fact is that there is not much interest in these matters. People, the general public tends to see themselves as uh, totally apart from these things. 
Um, I mean, you may as well, uh, you know, equate it with, you know, disarming a nuclear uh, uh, bomb or something. It's something you read about, but it really has nothing to do with my life. Um, well, I think is the, the the general attitude of a lot of people until and unless they are exposed to it, unless it it becomes their lives, and those are the people um, that really understand and really care. Uh, again, I come back to the question of education: Is education enough? Is it just a process? Is it uh, you know how well, do we you know, not just the judges but the public? So it's a matter of saturating the public with this information. And, you know, we have recently seen a dramatic uptick in statute of limitations reform for child sex abuse victims. And that was largely due to a tipping point that we reached when the the Larry Nasser stories were coincident with the Jeffrey Epstein stories with the church problems. And so when you can get the attention of the public. You have to work very hard on it. But I think that on the family court crisis issues, I think just the response last week uh, to Danielle's announcement of this legislation in Connecticut gives you an insight into the fact that the culture is ready to hear it. They're ready to be educated. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the, the reporters are the first line. On that, and if the reporters aren't interested, we're sunk. Uh, but when they become mm-hmm. very interested, then it, it seems to me there's reason for hope. I, I agree with you. I did a, 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 a conference not too long ago uh, with women journalists. Uh, it was a women's journalist or journalism organization, um, and the the subject was reporting on domestic violence and intimate partner abuse. Um, to let them know how, you know, there's such a standard formulaic way to report on these things. And I've collected headlines over the years. And I literally, I literally have a headline from a newspaper that says, nice guy kills wife, kids. Oh, jeez. Jeez. Nice guy. You know? They left out Um, wonderful. Yeah, yes, yes. uh, Ideal. Ideal father kills his children. Um. And and that's I mean that is not an exaggeration. It, it that's how things are reported, and so it has become my goal to try and educate people. On, you know, don't go asking the neighbors to talk about what a nice guy he was. You know, go get an right. expert who understands the dynamics of these things. You know, that kind of thing. So and, and I think that that that's a movement that is occurring with again journalists who want to learn more. Um, I want to step aside a little bit. You know, this problem that we're seeing in family courts, um, I hesitate, not deep in my little soul, because, you know, I mean, how I feel in my deep in my little soul is a little bit different from how I want to present things on our radio show, because I want people to be able to listen. I don't want to present information that turns people off, and then they go, ah, I'm not going to listen to that, because then they'll miss the whole point. So I try to stay away from the whole bashing the men's rights thing and um, misogyny and all that. But it seems to me that the way courts operate, the assumptions that we have about women's um, uh, claims, et cetera, how much of that can be rested on the shoulders of, you know, age-old misogyny? You want to take that, Marcia? I, yeah. I, I, I'm happy to say that I think that so much of what happens in family court is reliant on women's 
credibility. I mean, all litigants' credibility. But we have this broad, long-standing bias, you know, that of the image of the vindictive ex, right, and the angry uh, ex who makes up abuse claims. And you know, empirically, that's an inaccuracy. The people least likely to make child abuse claims are the primary caregivers, the, the you know, who are generally the moms. We we know that from science, but culturally we still have this attitude that's uh you can find all over the place, you know, that that women are uh, t- you know, they're not telling you the truth. And it's um it's unfortunate that this still exists, but part of what we're trying to do is get family courts to go back to relying on the rules of evidence and admissibility standards and to really improve their standards so that they're not reliant on, you know, just personal opinion and bias when they're making decisions and they're really using the normal rules of evidence and procedure that's used in all the other courts. Um, part of the reason that family court has gotten sort of so loosey-goosey about how they apply the rules um, is because, firstly, they're all behind closed doors. They're all private, you know, so the public doesn't know what's happening in the in the trial court, in lower courts, in family court. And the press would like to cover some of that, I think, but they can't get in there. The only, you know... Um, thing that they can look at are what happens in the appellate division, in the higher division. So when people with enough means who can appeal. Mm -hmm. I'm going to stop you there because that gobsmacks me. I thought all of our courts were open to anyone. I mean, you have court watchers. You have people that can just stop by. You have retired people that just do it for entertainment. Are you telling me that the, the public is excluded from observing court proceedings in family courts? Or some of them? Yes, absolutely. The, it's very, very common that the judges will, uh, you know, if anyone tries to come in, they will make them leave um, in, in family is law cases. Is that legal? I mean, is that constitutional? Uh, the, 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 the reason they put forward is to protect the privacy of the litigants and the children. And also then you cannot see the, um, you know, they don't publish the findings and the motions filed and none of that you cannot look at that publicly and the reason they put forward is to protect the the people involved which that's a real concern but not those people involved would be the judges and the the court personnel are those people that we're protecting here well Um, i mean some people may make that argument but the reason they put forward is is for the litigants and the children's uh, identity um and so that's, that's part of why it's so hard to study. What's that? Yeah. I, in, along the same lines, I was just reading a posting, uh, a blog posting uh, last night where multiple people, I can't remember the name of it. I'm sure you'd be familiar with it. It was, it was a Facebook posting from one of the sites, from one of the many um, uh, sites that, that try to deal with this. And um, they posted a sign. Uh, there was a, a, a photo of a sign saying that no proceedings could be recorded um, or, or videoed uh, in, wa- on the other side of the door, or it was contempt of court. Um, That's absolutely true. Uh, I just have a mom, a protective mom, who was sent to jail for having a recording device in her pocket. It wasn't working, um, but she had it in her pocket, and they they arrested her in the court and, and took her to jail 
while she was having an, an epileptic seizure, I might add. Um, it, I don't <laughs> that, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and they, they yeah. decided she was faking it because, I mean, of course, you can really fake a good epileptic seizure, can't you? Um, no, the, not really. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. The ignorance is astonishing to me uh, that goes on in court. It would seem to me, I mean, where's the ACLU? I mean, having closed doors court, I mean, that to me just, and I'm not a constitutional attorney, I'm not even an attorney, but good Lord, isn't that, I mean, that's in such violation to the It's actually not. You know, it, yeah, it, speaking it's as a constitutional law professor, it, it's really not, yeah, it, it, it's not unconstitutional, but it's not in the interest of the children necessarily. So, you know, I think one of the most important ways to, yeah, well, I mean, I think one of the most important ways to think about this is that what we're building is a civil rights movement for children. And so long as you're only thinking about the adults in the room, there's this argument for secrecy and behind closed doors, protect everybody's reputation. Uh, But how do you protect children if potential abusers are constantly able to hide in the shadows? Um, mm-hmm. You can't. And so I do think this is something that needs to be revisited and, and publicly discussed. But I would also go back to your question about misogyny because it, it's not just a, a preference for men in the courts, but there is this very deep-seated presupposition in our society that we must protect the man's breadwinning status. We must protect his income. And that's why we see um, the fights over justice for child sex abuse victims. And that's why we see fights about what's going on in the courts. Uh, if, if the stay-at-home mother is attacking the father for being an abuser and he's an upstanding member of the community with a good income who's bought the house and supporting everybody. There's an instinct that we need to protect that man at all costs. And until we look at children as individuals who have civil rights, who have to be protected by our society, we're just going to continue to defer to the men. And in the, in the family court system, that's what's happening in a lot of these cases. There's a presumption that you need to protect the male breadwinner, uh, and so you just don't believe what it is that's being alleged. Yeah. Well, and I think, uh, quite honestly, there's also that assumption that women lie. Women lie. They just make it up. I mean, I I, I don't know. And they're overly emotional. Yeah. I mean, there's. Yeah. I mean, the women are all too emotional. You can't trust them with the children. The men are stone cold, very solid going to work every day and so the judges assume well if she looks like she's falling apart she probably is even if the reason she's falling apart is that she's just learned that her children are being abused and are are being destroyed exactly and the the court may want to send them back to the abuser i mean that's that's as much as the trauma of discovering that your children are being hurt uh, and, and not being able to protect them, there's this secondary trauma, this institutional trauma, when you then finally leave the abusive home and you get into court and you discover that you're being ordered to send your children to the person you know 
is harming them. And there's nothing you can do about it mm-hmm. because you can't disobey a court order. Then you're breaking the law. Then you potentially can get sent mm-hmm. to jail and you're in contempt. And so it's sort of a, a secondary trauma, an institutional trauma or institutional betrayal, um, as they coined the term, that you experience when you're a protective parent and you're not allowed to protect because the court is prohibiting you from doing that because they say, you know, you're not telling the truth. Or the kids, you've made the children be afraid of that other parent. Um, and then they blame the person who is the messenger. And uh, if you end up being punished because you are bringing the message of the truth of what's happening to the child. I'm not saying that every single person who brings an abuse allegation is telling the truth, but the overwhelming majority of children who disclose abuse are telling the truth. I mean, they're trying to get – they're calling out for help. Study after study study has shown that. You know, it's interesting that you give the example. um, uh, You know, I had a a Denver family court – or a Colorado family court judge I interviewed and who was on the show. And I point blank asked – when you have two people in front of you, one has documented domestic violence allegations or abuse you know, or, or sexual abuse allegations, and the other one does not, what goes through the mind of a family court judge when he or she gives custody to that abuser? And her response to me was, well, you have to understand, there is two people in front of you. One is frantic and uh, overly emotional, and the other one ha- is, is in charge. He's, he's in control. So if the abuse isn't that bad, we'll give the children to the person that's in control. And I'm thinking, and this person, this judge, I was told, I sought out a judge who was familiar with domestic violence issues. And I was told, oh, this woman knows it. She understands. Well, clearly she does not. I mean, she does not have a clue if she thinks that his being in control is indicative of a good environment for that child. You know, being in control is a symptom of his abuse. And yet this was the response she gave me. I practically fell off my chair. And that's exactly what you just described as the attitude. So, you know, it's just astonishing to me. You know, one of the other things uh, while we're talking about court is that uh, I had, um, uh, I can't remember his first name, but Dakota, um, you're probably Richard familiar Dakota. with him. Yes, he's yes helped, he helps with this initiative, yes. Yes, he's been on the show, and he says that um, the the rules of evidence and all of the, the usual procedures for operating a courtroom are not used in family court that That's in correct. family court in family court there is some sort of pressure to preserve the family at all costs and that that's where it all goes south in the family court could you speak to that and i hope i'm quoting him correctly i'm i'm paraphrasing like crazy but um that's the gist of it marcy could you address that sure i i it, there's no question that there is Uh, a great deal of discretion given to the judges in family court, even with respect to evidentiary rulings, Um, and even to the point where they can refuse to listen to experts. And so if you're going to try to use the cases themselves to educate the judges, it's really challenging. 
Uh, and so really that means that our only way around this problem of absolute faith in their own judgment, which is faulty, is to educate them through continuing legal education, to educate them through public education, to saturate the news with these issues. Um, because there is great trust in their uh, instincts. And, you know, if you think about it, this is really just a repetition. It's just another example of what we've seen across the culture. You know, at one time, if a child went to their parent and they told them that they were being sexually abused by a priest, that parent would think, that child is lying, and they'd, pub they'd punish the child because there's no way that a priest was doing that to them. And it's those kinds of assumptions that we know about trustworthy individuals that put kids at danger. And so, you know, I think really one of the most important facts that we've got to get out to everybody sooner rather than later is that the people who are going to harm your child more often than not are the people who have created trust, who say they love your child, they may actually feel they love your child, who shower your child with attention. Uh, and in the family court, when the judge is looking at, at uh, the alleged perpetrator, uh, if that perpetrator is standing up as, a, as an exemplary uh, citizen, it's hard for the judge to resist the intuition if they don't know that this is the way that adults abuse children. They do it by looking trustworthy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, exactly. And I think that the assumptions that we have uh, about people who abuse, the assumptions that we make about, you know, all bad guys are skulking around and they look unshaven and whatever. Um, right. we, we carry those with us. Um, you know, all of us do. And if you're not educated enough to know that that ain't the truth, then a lot of harm can be done. Yes. I, yes. I mean, we, we have this I whole wouldn't... mythology about stranger danger that is yeah. that was so well taught to us as kids and turns out to be really hard to get out of the culture that, you know, the majority of people who are going to harm kids are, are wearing a trench coat and look scary. It's just not true. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And we also fact, have. It's good yeah. We also have this thing in the courts, um, in the family courts, a sort of a whole cottage industry that's bloomed up around the courts since the late 1980s, and they are, you know, we've added in guardian ad litems to come in and tell the court what to think. Um, and custody evaluators to come in and tell the judges what to think. Um, and so much of what they're telling the courts is based on their own personal biases, and, the, and many of them are very poorly trained, if they're trained at all, on the facts mm -hmm. of child abuse and child sex abuse and perpetrator behavior and child victim behavior and why children recant sometimes. They're not, they don't have a real um, sophisticated knowledge base that they're starting from, and yet they're coming into court and they have a lot of authority in the courtroom, um, what their reports say and what they, you know, tell the judge and the judges are abdicating their decision-making power to these tertiary figures in making their their 
decisions about who should have custody and who should have access and how and should it be supervised or not. And so part of what we'd like to see happen is that judges become well-trained and they take back the decision-making power once they're well-trained on the facts of child abuse and also that they stick closer to the the normal rules, as Richard Dakota, I'm sure he did say something like that. Um, you know, the rules of evidence need to be returned to the family court so that they're making determinations not based on personal biases because the family court is just rife with them, thanks in part to the judges, but also to these, you know, secondary figures who are weighing in as, you know, experts or, you know, pseudo-experts in some cases. So how did we get in that position? Is it just going back to this whole idea of misogyny? This is We've always evaluated male opinions and male speech and male whatever as more valuable um, or more trustworthy. Is that what it is? Or is there something more that, that goes on that, that perpetrates this? Because let's face it, it, it it's, you know, it's 21st century. You would think that a lot of those things have gone by the wayside, but and in a lot of places they have, but not in family courts, apparently. Well, it's really history. Uh, you know, until the 20th century and into the 20th century, women and children were the property of men. Um, and so it is only relatively recent in history that women are independent and capable of making their own determinations about their own futures and that children are no longer just property that is basically the father's whim to make them work or send them to school. It's only recently that we now see men, women, and children as each humans with human rights attached to them. So part of what's mm-hmm. going on is just changing the, the DNA of how we think about relationships in our society. We've made a tremendous amount of progress. Uh, but we really do have to keep hammering home this concept that children have civil rights and adults often are not as important in a scenario as the child uh, because adults prefer and protect themselves. And it's very, very difficult for children to have any rights or standing in order to protect themselves, but that's changing. Uh, and it really is the the vast, uh, movement to protect children and to end child abuse and neglect around the world that's making this happen. Absolutely. That's so, such an important point. I cannot emphasize that enough. Um, you know, children need to begin to be looked at as not an extension of the parent. They need to be looked at as a whole individual. And it's just hard for a lot of people in our culture, not just for abusers. Uh, you know, people think of children as their possessions. And certainly they're in the care of an adult because they're young. But we need to we need to move beyond thinking about them as a as an extension of the parents, and, and primarily that's what they're looked at in our legal system and historically, obviously, as Marcy's pointed out, it's uh, it's such a critical point. You know, a lot of the abuser's behavior and mentality is ownership mentality. They think that they own their ex and that they especially think they own their children, and so they demand rights to them even if they're harming them, they think that their ownership uh, is more important than the child's well-being. 
and it's, a, it's really astonishing that we're still there, but we have we have a ways to go to teach the public and the yeah. and the court personnel. Absolutely. I want to uh, a few minutes ago you uh, were talking about the solution to this problem, um, and I want to talk more about that because so far. I've heard you say the solution is better education. And while I don't disagree, I have some reservations about how effective that is because, as I said, my, my opinion is that people only get – you can offer education, you can put good information out there, but if people are not receptive to it, if they don't buy into it, then you may as well, you know, save your breath. So um, – what is the solution? Is it education? Is that what we're looking at? Is the solution to this problem? That's a big no, it's, part it's of it, two but things. it's not but the it's, only it's, part. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's it's two things, and it, it's true for child abuse in all of its forms. It's a combination of legal reform. We must change the legal system. So when we talk about uh, the fact that we need to do a better job educating judges, we want to see that in statutes, but also we need to reformulate the way family courts operate so that they put uh, abuse and the question of abuse at the top of the list of what's to be concerned about first and that they make it a priority. Um, and, you know, frankly, in the Me Too era, we finally have a label that's sticking in the culture that's getting people who don't want to pay attention to pay attention to sex abuse and sex assault. And that's mm -hmm. extending to abuse. And so, I mean, we just see empirically that the, the country and the world is now listening. And so what we're trying to do as quickly as we possible can is to fill the demand and the need for more information and more data. What doesn't work is just the stories. What does work is the stories followed by the data and the science. And if you put those together and you get legal reform and you get the public education and the, and the judge's education, I have no doubt that we can turn the corner on this. Okay. And so tell me about the legislation in, uh, is, that's being proposed in Pennsylvania, because I know there are several states uh, there that are trying to uh, move forward with legislation. In my own state of Washington, we have, uh, in the last session last year, we have a uh, part-time legislator, legislature. And uh, in last year's um, uh, session, they did pass the uh, or they did uh, change the statute of limitations requirement for child uh, abuse, child sexual assault, uh, which is something, and that's good. Um, but elaborate, please, on, on the the whole legislative kind of, of of approach to this. So what we're doing in Pennsylvania is we I pulled together all the smartest people I know about these issues, Marcy being one of them, uh, Joan Meyer at GW Law, and Richard Ducote, who's a private litigator. And I said, we need to draft legislation that is really going to try to help correct this problem in family courts. So we put all our heads together, and we came up with uh, a draft that we brought to lawmakers um, we actually brought them an earlier version in 2017, and it was introduced, but it didn't get as far as this iteration is getting, which has been nicknamed Cadence Law. And um, 
So we are advancing that effort in Pennsylvania. We brought it to lawmakers in the spring, and um, they've had we've made some revisions to it. And we just had a big stakeholders meeting last week with the lawmakers and um, the state DV coalition and the rape coalition and women's law project and several others um, who've been looking at this issue for a long time to try to get legislation advanced that will. Um, still leaves the judges with great discretion, and they do need discretion in these cases because they every family is different, every child is different, and they need to look at the several factors in the custody statute, 16 factors in Pennsylvania. But what needs to happen also is when there's abuse allegations, um, the courts must consider that first and independent of these other 16 factors. Um, because we know from the evidence, from the research, from Jones' research and other research, what is happening is when courts are looking at abuse allegations at the same time as the other factors, the other most states have 16 or 17 factors that the judge has, has to use to determine custody. When they're looking at abuse and simultaneously looking at these other factors, and some of the factors are um, what we call a friendly parent factor or a factor that talks about um, a parent turning a child against another parent, which is sort of code for alienation, this debunked uh, theory that's put forward um, and is used as a counterclaim to abuse. When judges look at those things all together in one, uh, as one lot, the abuse claims are minimized. They're sort of erased or they're hidden. They're, they are, they're not given the weight that they must be given. And so what we're trying to do in the legislation is to get courts to have sort of a separate procedure when there's abuse claims, that they must have an evidentiary hearing that looks at just the abuse part. And then they make a determination on that. And then based on whether there's a finding or not, then if there's a finding, then the abuser cannot have the custody of the children. They may, you know, if in the right circumstance, have some uh, supervised contact, but they cannot have custody if there's a finding of abuse. So it saves the court time to do it this way. They don't even have to go through the other factors, right, because child safety is the prime importance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to most of us, that would seem very logical. Um, to most of us, it would seem that child safety would be the first and primary and just about the only real consideration for chi determining child custody. Um, are there any states that have been doing this? Louisiana, uh, thanks to Richard Ducote, um adopted it, uh, a very good uh, piece of legislation in 2018. So that's a good model to look at. Colorado has a model that has an evidentiary hearing around abuse. It's not as strong as we'd like it to be. Um, we're trying to put forward a, a, a somewhat stronger one with Caden's Law in Pennsylvania and now with the Child Safety First Bill in Connecticut that we just introduced on Friday. And we expect to do it in other states uh, upcoming. Okay. Um because I know there's a lot of activity, there's a lot of interest in trying to change the laws. What's 
your feeling? Is this going to be well received in Pennsylvania? Is there? Uh, is it going to be? Is it, and and again, typically, I mean, it's not atypical, shall we say, for legislation to have to be reduced, uh, introduced a couple of times before it's passed. So, I mean, the fact that you know, if it doesn't pass once, this doesn't necessarily mean that it's it's dead in the water. Um, there are other sessions. There's other ways they can tweak it, etc. But what's your projection um, on whether how well this will be received, and what's the timeline for the Pennsylvania legislature? Well, as Marcy can attest, uh, it takes sometimes several sessions to get <laughs> to get anything enacted. Um, but we're quite positive about it. I'm not sure that we'll get it done this session, but there is a lot of attention being paid to this. Uh, bill, and we have, uh, for example, on the House version of it, which is identical to the Senate version, we have 40 co-sponsors. So 40 lawmakers are signed on, um, which is a big number. Um, and in the Senate, we hope to get more. Um, it is a process. We need to get all the stakeholders on board and everybody, you know, to be on the same page and agree on the language. And then we need to get it into committee and hold hearings where we can have an opportunity to really educate um, everyone, the public, lawmakers, and others interested in this issue. But there's a lot of energy behind it. Um, people really started to pay attention to this issue, again, unfortunately, because of a tragedy of the loss of life of uh, Caden Mancuso last year. She was uh, brutally murdered by her biological dad during a court-ordered uh, visit, despite the mom really being vocal and saying that, you know, she's concerned and that he's dangerous. Um, he was granted unsupervised visitation, and then he murdered her and uh, uh, murdered himself. And the, the fa her family has been very active in trying to get the public to listen to what the problems are and help, you know, reform the family courts. So I think people are paying attention. Certainly the response in Connecticut also is indicative of that people are starting to listen and understand that there's a real problem in the family courts and that reform is needed. Well, and it seems to me, again, as a layperson, as a human being, safety should always be the first criteria. I mean, sure. and if you're not sure, you know, if you have doubts that whether these accusations that this person is making against the other person are accurate, so what? Make sure that the child is safe. Err on the, the err on the side of safety mm -hmm. while you're sorting it out. Don't just yeah. assume. You know, I mean, that seems to me a logical human reaction, and I'm just always gobsmacked when I hear about judge after judge after judge um, that that will just go ahead and do this. And Marcy, uh, you said something that just really uh, rung with me, rang with me. Okay, forget grammar; it's cold here. <laughs> um, <laughs> That that these judges trust their instincts. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. great if they have good instincts, but if they don't, and I'm always, I, I'm thinking, uh, I could never be a judge. I'm very judgmental, but I could never be a judge because <laughs> always in my mind I'm thinking, well, maybe not. You know, maybe there's another way to look at this. And judges seem to be so wedded to, nope, this is the way it is, and this is how I see it, and so there it is, done deal, move on. And if right. there are bad repercussions to that, they somehow or other have a, uh, an innate ability to just shelve it and, and step back from any 
guilt or responsibility. And, and I know I'm making a sweeping generalization here, but that's my experience. That's what I've seen. Is there a particular personality for judges? No, okay. and, you know, here's the, tr- here's the truth. It's really not just judges. It's really the whole culture. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people who have been parents, uh, teachers, people in a in a child's life who were fooled uh, by the presentation that you get from someone who's actually abusing a child. None of us want to believe that it's very common. It turns out it is common. And no one wants to believe it's happening in this context. So part of the project, and, and we're making tremendous progress on this, but Part of the project is to persuade the world that many children are abused. It's just a fact. Mm-hmm. And if, you, if people will accept that, then they're more likely um, to change their perspective. But, you know, the single most important talk I ever heard on this issue was early on, after the spotlight story came out about Boston's archdiocese and the cover-up, I invited people uh, for a conference and asked Ken Lanning of the FBI. He was really the leading expert, now retired, but he was the leading expert on child sex abuse. And the most important line I heard at his presentation, and I will never forget it, is that, oh, and by the way, the person who is sexually abusing your kid is almost always the nice guy. Mm-hmm. It's in the yeah. 90% it's male. And number two, it's the guy that's gotten you to trust him. And in fact, he may be so honorable that it's almost surreal. Um, and that everybody has put this person on a pedestal. And it's that, all those social presuppositions that we put our teachers and our, our Boy Scout leaders and our clergy and our fathers and our coaches we put them on a pedestal, and then when a child comes forward, we're like, well, you're just a child. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, children yeah. don't know what it's talking about. But, but the truth is, is that we know as a matter of the science, kids don't make this up. It's very rare for a child to make this up. And so we've just got to learn that, honestly, we can't trust our instincts. Uh, I don't know if you watched um, HBO's documentary, Leaving Neverland, but... You know, there, you see parents who let their children stay with Michael Jackson overnight because they trusted him to take care and love their children because he was so loving in public. Um, this <laughs> is the problem. We just presume that people who are nice to our kids are actually good behind our backs, and, and too often it's just not true. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I used to do, um, 100 years ago, I used to do pre-sentence reports for our county uh, court system, and I dealt with a lot of um, pedophiles. And all of my friends, when I was raising my children, just laughed at me hysterically because I would never take my eyes off my children. Do you know how many department store Santas (laughs) would come? (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, and oh, so yeah. I'm, I, uh, yeah. I don't care whether they told me to stand back or not. I was standing right there. And if I couldn't stand where I yeah. could see his hands, then my kids weren't getting their picture with him. We'd go to the next door. And yep. all of my friends, uh, you know, were just so, oh, my gosh, I was just irrational and crazy. I wasn't. 
I had that education no. that, you, that you've been talking about. I knew what can happen, and I didn't want mm-hmm. to isolate my kids. I didn't want to hold them into a box and not ever let them go to the department store, Santa, or wherever. But, boy, was I observant, and I never took my eyes off for a moment. And if there was a new babysitter, male or female, I would say, oh, I'll be back in two hours. And 34 minutes later, I'd be back at my door saying, oh, it ended early. You know what I'm saying? Um, yeah, no, it's true. And and if we could get every parent to understand it the way you understood it, we'd have a lot safer children. Yeah, we really and not would. that they're, you know... And people, uh, people are generally very, very good, but boy, those bad apples can really destroy a life. Um, and yeah. I think that oftentimes we're very naive about these people. Um, yeah, wow. I mean, sometimes we, we, we marry we, them, right? And then we have this horrifying <laughs> discovery, and then we we bring it to light. You know, these protective moms, mostly moms, it's not always, but mostly. They bring it to light. They take they take the next step into the public arena and say to the court, like, this is happening. They probably have some, you know, shame around it or terror, like, how could I have been with this person and not known? And they bring it to the court, and then they're disbelieved or, you know, it's minimized, mm-hmm. and they're forced to send their kid to that person who they know is hurting them. It's I can't tell you how excruciating and traumatizing it is for, for protective parents because that instinct you talk about, you know, watching Santa and not really knowing, when you know that that person is dangerous and you still have to send your child to go sit on his lap and have, you know, birthday parties or whatever, it's devastating. It's devastating to the protective parent and it's devastating to the child because sometimes the child has disclosed and a disclosure is a call for help, you know, and a call, and so then they call for help, and then they keep getting sent back to the person who's hurting them. Children give up hope after you keep doing that many times. And if the courts yeah. do not hear it and do not credit the abuse, what happens, you know, also psychologically to the child victims is they really get destroyed in this way, in addition to being physically harmed, it's such an, uh, an incredible damage to get them sent continuously back to the person who's hurting them after they've made a disclosure and after they've, you know, called out for help. They're they're essentially not being listened to, and it's very painful for the protective parent who is trying so hard to not have them be sent back into harm's way to have to just shrug their shoulders and deliver their children to the person who they know is hurting them and the child is clinging to the protective parent. And there's nothing they can do, the protective parent, because if they if they prohibit it, they are punished and they're sent to jail or they lose custody, they lose all the custody that they have to the abuser. And that's that's why a lot of protective parents, eventually they go silent. You know, they stop bringing the abuse claim to court because they realize that not only will they not be heard, it's sometimes they're punished for it. They they, they, they begin to lose custody. And this is just, Absolutely. it's an incredible harm that the public needs to be made aware of. Well, and not only do, you know, is is the damage that you've outlined, but also think of the women who stay in that situation, stay married to that abuser, because it's better, it's easier for them to manage and protect the child if they are st- if they are still living in the abuse, because yeah. of the court control. Um, you know, you, so I mean, it it just it's just 
it's awful. And yes, I know I'm going to get emails and uh, you know from men whining about how it happens to men too. Well, you know what? Not not really. You know, it does in rare cases, but the vast majority, the vast vast majority, we're talking where it happens to protective mothers and that are trying to take care of their kids. So don't whine at me about how it happens. I know my father was abused. I know it happens, but quit whining about it. It's just a little, you know, we're, we're talking about a large, large chunk of these kids. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, lo- I lose patience with the me too when it's, you know, the, yeah. the whining about that. Okay. I mean, yeah, there's well, an impulse and- always for equality and to be fair. And, of course, we that is absolutely we want to be fair to everyone. But if we just look at the data, you know, the overwhelming majority of child sex abuse perpetration is perpetrated by males. And also <laughs> the fatalities for children and near fatality abuse, fatality and near fatality abuse, so the really the most severe abuse, child sex abuse and fatality or near fatality, the overwhelming majority is perpetrated by a male. And so we just know that from data. I mean, you can just go to the Justice Department, mm-hmm. you know. And, of course, it's not it's not all male, but it is over mm-hmm. and them. Yeah. I, I do lose patience with that. I think in our efforts to be inclusive and fair, da, 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 we make too much by saying it happens to men too, it happens to men too, or, you know, men and women who. Well, what we're doing is basically creating a false impression that it's 50-50, and it is not. And so that's why I get on my, my little soapbox. Ladies, Marcy, Danielle, we have talked for an hour. Do you believe it? Um, <laughs> and I would, I would like to – first of all, I'd like to invite you back. Let us know how this effort goes uh, in Pennsylvania. Yeah. I want to know. Thank you. Um, uh, how it how it goes. Um, the other thing is that there are listeners out there who want to do something. Where can they go? What can they do to help? And uh, do you have some resources um, for we Child do. USA, et cetera? Yeah. Okay. So if they go to uh, childusa.org, uh, on the homepage we have a family court reform landing page. Uh, but they should also contact us at info at childusa.org. Uh, we actually have been in the process for some of our cases where we're collecting stories, uh, and we are also putting together a portal for, uh, in particular, the victims of child sex abuse, but also the parents and everybody else involved. So we would love to hear from people, and uh, we're dedicated to making this change. And, and Danielle is leading the way for us at Child USA. Absolutely. Great. Reach Thank out you. to us. We have a film there too, a short film talking about the reforms that we're doing and several productive parents are interviewed, including Caden's mom, and that's on our on our homepage, so you can have a look. And that's childusa.org. So go there. That film is very moving. Ladies, thank you so much for sharing what you're doing to help solve this problem, or at least mitigate it. And uh, please continue doing your work and um, come back. Tell us how it works. And for you out there, continue listening. We'll be back next week with a new Three Women, Three Ways.